0: You're
1: listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
0: Thank you for listening. This is Professor Robert D'Agostino with Do Facts Matter. And today we have a guest. Uh, he's a guest, uh, Matthew uh, Nelson. He's from, uh, Nielsen, excuse me. He's uh, a student at John Marshall Law School, and he's a little bit older than most of the students because he has more experience in the real world. And we're going to ask him about his Initial experiences and his experiences as an undergraduate. Uh, we hear a lot about the cancel culture. We hear a lot about people not being able to uh, to not feeling they're able to to, to, to express certain opinions. And we're going to go and, uh, and talk to uh, Matthew about uh, about some of this. Uh, Matthew, uh, tell us a little about your background. Well,
2: I I enlisted in the Army when I was 17. I joined the National Guard first, and then I went active duty uh, Army in 2004, and shortly I went to Fort Hood was my duty station. I ended up getting injured, and the Army decided to medically retire me. So from there, I moved up to New Mexico and opened up a martial arts school with my instructor and decided it would be a good idea to run as a Republican and the bluest district in new mexico so that was fun and uh after that 2013 moved back to my home uh home city las vegas where i grew up hey matt what what did you run for in in new mexico i ran for the i ran for the state legislature in uh, the, uh,
0: New Mexico's 42nd district in Taos against uh, Bobby Gonzalez. Well, I noticed that uh, New Mexico did elect a Republican congressman from the uh, one of the two districts. Well, they have a tendency to do that from time to time. The, the
2: southern part of New Mexico is actually, believe it or not, a little bit more uh, to the right than the north. Um, for, for instance, you look at when it's... I ran for office the same year Susanna Martinez ran for, for governor, and she's from Donna County right there in the, the south. And that's more they're, – they're more leaning that way. Like Janice Rogers-Brown was, was – I'm sorry, Janice Rogers-Jones was a uh, was from that
0: district. So it's
2: more – oh,
0: I'm sorry. Uh, okay, now uh, when did you decide to go to law school?
2: Well, I decided uh, – Early on, I had a, an experience with with a, my own divorce case, and decided that it would be a good idea to to learn the law. <laughs> that way, I could help others that you know were in that particular situation. And I had a good time
0: of it. So, yeah, I, I'm sure you did. Okay, let's let's go to your entrance to Atlanta's John Marshall Law School, and uh, you initially. They had some seminars, some uh, introductory seminars. Tell us about uh, what you experienced there. Well, these these
2: seminars are, are billed as professionalism. You know, this is what you need to be a good attorney. However, by the very title, at least of the first one, was The Lawyer's Role in Advancing Social Justice,
0: you know what the topic's going to be. I had a question before you go into the details. Did they ever define social justice for you? No, there's
2: never really a strict definition of social justice. It's just more platitudes. Uh, For for example, this really went into why we need
0: to have a no-cash bail nationwide. So social justice is no-cash bail for criminals or people arrested for crimes. That, that is one of the
2: aspects of their definition. Okay. Keep going. So we're... we're, we're I, I know where we're going with this, and, and we get a, uh, the, the professor teaching class. He, he plays an audio link of somebody allegedly in jail that was sent to him by the bail project. And this guy talks about how he is uh, in jail, has his fiancée and five kids relying on him, but he can't pay his bail. And so my simple question was, what is he charged with? Because it seems to be a valid point. If the gentleman was picked up on a bench warrant for not showing up to court for a parking ticket, then, yeah, he doesn't have criminal background. Let, let, you know, I, I'm okay with giving him community service. account for bail. I, I can see that point. However, if he was picked up on a domestic call, standing over his fiance's body with the with a dripping with a knife dripping blood, we might not want to lower his bail or even give it to him. So, however, that is a point when I started to be started uh, uh, be put under scrutiny and become basically eviscerated by the rest of the by the rest of the class so what was the answer to your question what was in jail for i never received an answer the only answer that i got was from the rest of the class in the form of attacks which i'm okay with i'm I'm, I'm used to that kind of thing right and what did they attack you for well because i asked what is a gentleman charged with? Which seems to be a plausible question specifically in law school. I am now a Nazi, a racist, a white supremacist. i I hate black people. I don't want I don't want prisoners to have health care, and it just was a simple question of what is he charged with? Because obviously, for certain offenses, you're not given a bill. And so it's it's a very important question to
0: ask, I thought or you can get or get a high bail. Yes, I you know what about the fellow who uh, started uh, a number of fires, he got out no bail and he started another fire. An arsonist, so a serial arsonist and he's out there. Not to mention in, in New York the person let out no bail uh, assault charges and he went and think he may have murdered somebody the next time he was out but anyway there's a whole bunch of those kinds of stories but there's certainly a whole movement our 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 apparent vice president elect Kamala Harris was very active in this no bail movement wasn't she absolutely yeah okay well tell us more about uh uh, what else you experienced? Uh, let, let me go back a little bit, a while. You, you graduated uh, as an undergraduate. I think you mentioned to me in 2018, right? That's correct. Okay. As an undergraduate, and what what school were you at?
2: Well, I, I finished my bachelor's degree online, okay. Actually, and went and finished half of my master's degree at the at the same institution. Uh, I was on campus for my
0: associates. Okay. Let, uh, when you were on campus did you feel that the students were willing to express their opinions in classes if they didn't agree with the professor?
2: Uh, more or less. We had pretty pretty unbiased professors. I mean, you knew where they stood, but nobody got penalized or pointed out or highlighted via Socratic method because they might have a different point of view
0: than the professor. Okay, now you're at John Marshall Law School, and... Uh, You've got a couple of uh, experiences with a couple of professors, including the one who talked that seminar in social justice, uh, undefined. I always like to ask someone who's, I'm for social justice. I said, well, tell me what that is. Everybody be treated equally. Equally in what way? And then you go to their, well, they all have... uh, the same results in life. They all have. And how are you going to ensure that? So you get them. You got a whole bunch of questions you go down the line. And I always end up with the uh, our social justice warriors, our student social justice warriors, was saying, you know, I don't think I'm for social justice. So I'm, I'm already, uh, uh, I, I guess I'm marked for extinction at the school. Then I'm getting old. So what the hell? I'm saying. So they can cancel me. So what? And my age. I'm already half-canceled anywhere. Or four-fifths canceled anyway. So, okay, then you, you go to classrooms, and you've got um, uh, a class. You've got a constitutional law class, in fact. Not yet. Next uh, year. Or, or, sorry, or you have a... Well, that's even more interesting. You don't have a constitutional class, which is really a political class anyway, because constitutional law doesn't have much to do with the Constitution. It's really, uh, uh, you know, the Constitution has been pretty well gutted. Uh, Woodrow Wilson it was contemptuous of the Constitution, and the whole progressive Movement's always been contemptuous. And, and by the way, for the audience, I will be writing an article about that, uh, and it centers on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her attempts to subvert the Constitution. Uh, brilliant lady, absolutely brilliant lady. That's made her more dangerous. <laughs> and uh, uh, Influential, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, she, she did everything she can in the later part of her uh, service on the Supreme Court to subvert what was left of the Constitution. Uh, but let's go back to y- your course. So you don't have a constitutional law class. So you have essentially law classes dealing with Different aspects of the law, and what did you experience there? Any of those classes? Did you experience uh, a little uh, propagandizing? Uh, just, just just a little bit, yes, sir. <laughs> we we were, what one of, one of my
2: classes, we were discussing a, a, a case, Ashcroft
0: Eggball, and tell us what that case is about, so the, the listeners can know.
2: Well, essentially, it's just where it was. At, it was after 9-11 and you had a Pakistani citizen got arrested so that they could to, they could investigate. And he ended up filing up to the Supreme court claiming he had constitutional rights to not be in that situation. And the court said, well, you need to have a higher level of pleading, you know, to, to get rid of their immunity. And then you had Ashcroft and, um, Mueller,
0: Ashcroft was the attorney general at that time. Yes, go
2: ahead. And then you have Mueller also. They were able to withdraw themselves or, or have their part of their their case dismissed. Well, what was, what
0: was this Pakistani, uh, was he a Pakistani citizen or a U.S. citizen? He was a Pakistani citizen. <coughs> and what was his contention?
2: He was saying that the only reason he was arrested is because he was he was Muslim, and that was it. just okay. based off of age, or based off of his, his race and religion.
0: Although Muslim's not a race, but, you know, yeah, so. okay. Uh, I just wanted to clarify that for the audience. But go ahead, tell us about what happened in, in your in class. So we're
2: we're we're in the class, and you know, there, there's been there's been veiled revealing, which seems to be an oxymoron like military intelligence, uh, of how how this particular professor felt. And view view the, the world and view the constitution. But this is when it really came out. When she started talking about how how the gentleman was arrested merely for looking like he was Muslim. She went to one white student and asked, Was your family arrested? And he said, No. And then went to the next white student, Well, was your family arrested? No. And then she went to a black student and said, Well, do you think that your family would be in danger of being arrested? And you notice the difference in the question. Was your family arrested versus would your family be at risk of being arrested? And, of course, he he, he uh, responded, well, not maybe if they joined the Brotherhood, converted to the Brotherhood, which, of course, is the Muslim Brotherhood. And then
0: yeah, that's kind of like where it went along along those lines. Well, she was getting her point across, I suppose, Uh, and that particular professor is actually a, a very good professor, but she is radical left, that's for sure. Okay, we're up against a hard break. We'll be back after the break.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
0: This is Professor Robert D'Agostino, back with Do Facts Matter, and I'm here with my guest, who is a first-year student at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School, Matthew Nielsen. Uh, Matt, uh, what about the students? Uh, now, of course, this semester, we've been doing... Uh, uh, internet uh, classes using Zoom, so it's really hard to get a real feel about what a lot of students really think. Uh, do you get the impression that the students are very left-wing or right-wing or or just uh, playing... Uh let's say, reluctant to express their views, particularly if they're right of center?
2: I I think it's a a mixture of of all three. The ones that are are far over on the left and and embrace completely in the blanket of the woke culture are very much prolific with with getting out their message. And then you have people like me who I I will debate your point. I, I will discuss it with you and I doesn't bother me who knows and then there's a v- much more i think vast majority of students who just are in there just trying to get by are more middle to right or center that just do not want to be put on that radar because they don't want to be 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 ousted for lack of a better word and put on the radar of the of the of, of the professors
0: or the rest of the class so, in other words, a conservative student would be afraid of being outed as a conservative, not outed as a criminal, not but outed as a conservative.
2: Yeah, that, that's my that's my impression of it. And uh, well, I had a, I've had a couple conversations just like that along that lines. Like, you know, hey, well, I agree with you. I agree with your points, but it's not accepted, especially in law school. And I got to keep it to myself, or else I might. Find myself in trouble, and at the end of the pitchforks of the left, that's in our class. Okay.
0: Well, that's interesting. Uh, you think in law school, particularly in law school, that people would uh, hone their debating skills, hone their skills to put their position across? Yet we we see that's not it's not happening, is it?
2: No, it's not. And and yeah, you're absolutely right. We're we're training. To be like you, sir, to be into a profession that's completely adversarial where we will one day have to be in court, more more likely than not, and I'm sure there's fields of law where people aren't going to go to court, but most of us will be in court, and we'll have to argue in favor of a client whether we agree with him or not to the best of our ability and be passionate in court and be very passionate against opposing counsel and be able to go have a beer later. You know, and, and just, well, that was a fun day. You know, but for whatever reason, jumping over that gap of, well, we're all woke now, and the Constitution is old and outdated, and it's just really not important. We're just learning it so that we know how to manipulate the laws rather than try to stick to what it says. So we're just going to cut off all debate. And if you disagree with me, then you, you need to be shunned and canceled. Instead of trying to meet halfway, and even if we don't, if I don't convince you, you don't convince me, at least be able to discuss it in a civilized manner. I mean, we're we're, we're studying law. <laughs> this is the time when we should be able to meet and have
0: civil discourse, but that's just not not a priority. Well, it's kind of interesting that you, two points that you made, which are interesting that... There's an attitude that the Constitution is old and outdated. And, of course, that's exactly the position taken by Woodrow Wilson and exactly the position taken by the progressive movement. They absolutely believe the Constitution's in the way of creating their definition of a utopia, mm-hmm. and the and Constitution has to go. And to a large extent, if you take a look at what's happened to constitutional norms, uh, particularly under Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, and now and Barack Obama, uh, the Constitution has been subverted. Uh, and I mentioned earlier in the, in the, in the uh, program, that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a more recent uh, person helping to subvert the Constitution, because I feel it's in the way of of creating this utopia that should be run by a vanguard of, as Lenin would put it, a vanguard of experts. We want a country run by experts, and so this—they don't believe in democracy. No, I, no, I mean, please. The, the Congress is what's Congress's main function is supply the money for the bureaucrats, but uh, they certainly uh, uh, believe in uh, legislation by, by judges. And uh, look what happened in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. There's a, a legislative rules, laws about elections, election day, election voting, and, and when it can happen. And, and the Secretary of State of Pennsylvania, a Democrat, decided. He didn't like those. It would limit his ability or the Democrats' ability to to cast fraudulent votes. So he uh, went to court and got some yo-yo judge on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to say, oh, well, because of COVID-19, that makes the law unconstitutional. And therefore, Secretary of State, you can do whatever you want. You have all these mail-in ballots, you can count them, you know, you can keep counting them until Biden wins the state that was essentially what what the opinion was yeah i I don't think there's any question that on the law the those ballots have to be thrown out and i think that trump will end up taking pennsylvania but of course that unfortunately will not give him the election Uh, with arizona going democrat going for biden and georgia of all places going for biden there's no way that trump can can win I don't think he could overturn the results in Wisconsin or Michigan, even though they have this wacky uh, software problem that uh, seems to be, uh, uh, if they can prove the software was that, that was used all through Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, if they can show that the software was fixed as to change votes. From Trump to Biden and, and, and they have shown that in one of the districts where it was used, 6,000 votes uh, if they could show that that was systemic, that would be interesting for the election but as far as, look the Democrats always ha- uh, uh, commit election fraud I mean that's part of their history uh, I can remember back in uh, Woody Jenkins running for Senator from Louisiana and he won that race and the Democrats stole it And the Republicans, who controlled the Senate and did not have to suit, seat, excuse me, did not have to seat the Democrat. They could have sent it back for another vote, or they could have told Woody Jenkins to take the seat. And Woody Jenkins had plenty of evidence of voter fraud, including people who voted eight eight times and were paid to do so. And the Republicans said, "Oh, we can't do that. The winner of this race, that's the declared winner, is a woman. We can't be seen not to see the woman." Typical Republican cowardice, political cowardice. And I always say, "What do say about the Republican Party as a party? That individuals are different. Some individuals, but as a party, it's politically stupid."
2: Well, I I, I'm not sure exactly who quoted it. I think it was probably John Solomon, but. What's really obvious about the parties is uh, Republicans seem to be content to hold office while Democrats hold power. You know, and, and one thing that you got to recognize and you got to got to take note of and kind of respect about the Democrat Party which is probably the only thing I respect about about them is their ability to try to fight together. This this last cycle is really. Kind of developed a, a, a brewing civil war between them, which I, I love to watch them eat their own. But if there was one Democrat in the House and one Democrat in the Senate and everybody else was Republican, they would fight so hard they would still get their agenda passed because Republicans, especially the establishment ones, are so afraid of those buzzwords of, "I'm a, you're a racist, you hate women, you hate, you're a homo- and, and just to prove that they're not like that. They will go along with the vote, and I think that that's really the that's that's a main
0: issue when dealing with them. You know, you mentioned about eating their own. The left always eats its own eventually because Absolutely. utopia can never be achieved. So it's always have to keep destroying what's been built in in the hopes that the next. Le, uh, and destruction uh, uh, will 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 then g- allow a utopian system to arise. So they're always eating their own. They're always doing that. Uh, anyone can see what happened in the French Revolution. Uh, see what happened in, in Soviet uh, Russia under Lenin and Stalin. See what happened in China under Mao, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution. Eating one's own, uh, and and Lenin made that really plain that uh, the. You know, The solution in Lenin for reformers, when someone said, "Well, you know, maybe we can't get everything we want. Let's reform this. Let's 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 solve this problem. Uh, Let's let's compromise with this," and Lenin clearly, clearly said, "The way to deal with reformers is to shoot them. Uh, It's all or nothing." And uh, I guess the great socialist Bernstein, who uh, went to England and said, came back to England and said, "Oh, you know what?" there are reforms. The capitalist system is reforming itself in England. Uh, we, we need to take a look at that. And he was, of course, viciously attacked by Lenin and uh, and and uh, for for, the, uh, for those views. And of course, I, when he made those views, he was attacked by Marx and Engels. And then, of course, Lenin rejected those views later on. But uh, Marx and Engels uh, t- attacked him for his uh, views that capitalism could be reformed. Uh, but the left always eats itself. And, and and the left always ends up the same way. Ordinary people suffer. There is no left-wing utopian movement anywhere that has ever helped ordinary folks. Look what's happened to the people in Venezuela. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, in fact, uh, America's Web Radio has a good show on Venezuela. So I urge listeners to look at uh, access that show. It uh, can access it in Spanish or in English. Is that right, David? Right. The first
1: hour uh, is in English and the second hour in Spanish.
0: And what day is that?
1: It's on, uh, it's yesterday as a matter of fact, uh, at 1 o'clock and
0: 2 o'clock. Okay. So those interested in what's going on in Venezuela may want to uh, take that because be our mainstream media seems to have a blackout on what's going on in Venezuela.
1: It's amazing. I think I mentioned this to you the other day when we were talking. Uh, Venezuela right now is under an oil crisis, and they're destroying the Caribbean. They have a leak in a pipeline that they can't fix, and, uh, you know, it's offshore, and it just keeps pumping out oil.
0: Well, you know, the good good news is that uh, Venezuela has no more oil revenues. Uh, and, and, of course, the bad news is the oil is leaking into the uh, Gulf of Mexico, and, uh, not the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. the Pacific Ocean. Pacific. And that the other, but there is a little good news, and that is there are bacteria do, that eat oil. It just takes them a while. Okay. So it's
1: going to take them a while.
0: Right. <laughs> I mean.
1: But uh, you, you haven't heard a word about this on any major news source.
0: No, there's a little bit of it on the internet if you look it up. I, actually, when you mentioned it to me a couple of weeks ago, I did look it up, and there's a little blur, but it's not much. No. Not much on the on the internet. So they are, uh, well, they wouldn't want to criticize a... One communist of, country? <laughs> yes. I said, well, yeah. Well, actually, communism is the end of socialism. you get got to go through a capitalist phase, socialist phase, and end up in communist phase. When everybody's completely equal. Uh, Kamala Harris is already there. If you look at one of her ads about everybody having equal outcomes, that's communism.
2: See, that that that's exactly right. You know, the Constitution provides everybody have an equal opportunity, but we're not guaranteed an equal outcome. And when you, what the video you're talking about, that was also passed around amongst. The students in my class, you know, equality versus equity, and the thing with, when it comes to socialism, communism, is you can't make everybody equal. The only way to do it is to take from you. So it, you can't make everybody rich, but you can make everybody poor. You know, if some, if my bro, my brother is six foot seven. You can't make me six foot seven. I'm six feet. So how would we be the same size? You got to cut them off at the knees. So that you know, socialism is the intercession of the incompetent and the incapable, and it's nothing but the waiting room for communism. It goes straight to it. There's, you're basically there eventually. That, that that is the end result, and then the process. You know, that's the end result of your your Titler cycle.
0: I, I'm glad you mentioned that this, this, uh, this was circulated around uh, the student body. What was the reaction of the students? I mean, how did, what do you think they felt about this? If you could gauge it, I know it's hard because you're on the Internet, Zoom.
2: Well, the ones that spoke up about it were all, of, all for it. Yes, yes, equity, equity, equity. We don't want equality. We want equity. And everybody else just kind of looked the other way. And I think that's part of the problem with our side is a lot of people don't want to express their views because they know where law school has generally gone in the in the last 20 years. And, and now, for instance, going all the way to what you were talking about, going back to the thing of Pennsylvania. You know, you and I know about this. Your listeners probably know about it, but there's people that are likely on the left that listen to this that like to will probably try to email you or, or try to mess with you in that respect. You know, the the part of it that was unconstitutional and the, one of my passions is wanting to fight judicial activism is, you know, Article four of the Constitution guarantees a Republican form of government. And that's where you get your your, your three branches of government and that's that that's where you get, you know, your federalism. And by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court rewriting that law, they violated that the Repo- they they violated Article Four, not to mention, you know, by not being able to get it through the through the legislature, the governor tried to do it and had the secretary of state do it, and they went to court, and it was a five four it was a five four ruling, and now it's it's in limbo, and I th- I think it's a it's an obvious case, regardless of what side you're on, of judicial activism, you know, because today it's a decision they like, tomorrow it might be a decision I like not even looking at the law, but because I play golf with the judge or something, and he likes my politics.
0: Well, uh, I think uh, the uh, Supreme Court has long since become a political uh, institution. And, uh, yeah, that's I, why I say we have a 5-4 court, not 6-3. Yeah, it's, um, you know, uh, that's not going to change. It's very hard for people to give up power. And the Supreme Court has assumed power over the years and have not been opposed by Congress. (laughs) Under the Constitution, we don't have three separate equal branches. The the Congress, the legislative branch, is is actually the dominant branch if they will use their power, which, of course, they don't do. So now we've got... uh, the two important legislative branches of the government are the courts, particularly the federal court, Supreme Court, and the uh, executive with their rulemaking authority, which the Supreme Court and Chevron case allowed them to have essentially mm-hmm. unlimited rulemaking authority. If, if the Congress says, be nice to uh, uh, little fishies, then the, uh, the executive branch promulgates uh, regulations that says the farmers can't have water for their crops, but uh, a subspecies of a smelt in California can have all the water they want. And it's not even a separate species, a subspecies. So, uh, which I think Trump pointed out more or less that in a talk. So, uh, that I don't think could be reversed. Uh, in fact, the matter is to tell you the truth, I don't believe the American people would tolerate a return to constitutional government.
1: I'm curious. The people that said equality, 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 have they ever worked?
2: One thing that I noticed, see, I'm 37 next week. I got lost on my way to law school. You know, I had other things to do, and I'm finally here the vast majority of my class seem to be on that K to JD pipeline. You know, from kindergarten to undergrad, now they're getting their JD and have no life experience. I know on a personal level, I would be terrified if I was being charged by the government for a very serious crime and my attorney was 23 and didn't have the life experience. I'm not saying it's not the person wouldn't be capable, but the vast majority, no, they haven't done anything other than a minimum wage job and they want they want their say in economic policy because well, I know better because my one professor told me this.
0: It's just in it it's, it boggles the mind. You know that's kind of interesting because I had an interesting experience in my seminar, uh, and I was talking about the fact that during the pandemic, uh, some something like three hundred to five hundred billion dollars was shifted up. To, to people already very wealthy and that came from the, the uh, people who weren't of uh, modest means. And I said, yeah, you know, we, we have this huge deficit and we're increasing the federal debt completely. And I said, what about a, a, a law uh, about the federal debt that says any individual or any institution with over $20 billion in wealth and that includes, let's say, we'd take George Soros, who has three or four different uh, Open Society Foundations, which he controls. So you'd aggregate all that. You'd aggregate Bill Gates with the Gates Foundation, but any and Harvard, you know, Harvard uh, uh, endowment would would qualify. If you're over twenty billion dollars in, in in wealth, then as a one shot tax deal to reduce the federal debt, not the deficit budget deficit but the federal debt Uh, what about a a tax 12% tax so Jeff Bezos who has 200 billion dollars would the first 20 billion is sheltered and has 180 billion and he had to do as a tax 12% of that let's say so we're talking about uh, 14 or so billion bucks so you can raise an awful lot of money 20 billion is the value of the uh, uh, Ford Foundation, which has been around a long time, so I said we shelter that. But Harvard's got a $40 billion foundation. Maybe they would have to get rid of one of their associate deans for diversity or something to save the money, uh, who they pay $400,000 a year for. Um, so, and I raised that issue with the court, with the class about doing this, and interestingly, I got a lot of pushback. No, these people have their this, their money. They, I was absolutely stunned because I did not believe my class to be particularly conservative in terms of uh, political outlook, but they really did push back on this idea of a, a kind of a variation of uh, a tax on wealth in a more sensible way of doing it as a one-shot deal and just to reduce the, the federal debt. Uh I got to think through it again after the class. Really, uh, a couple of people supported that in the class, but the most people who spoke did not support that. And I got non-support from people that I thought were politically quite to the left. So maybe they were felt easy about speaking their mind in my class and they would have other classes because number one, uh, they know I'm a conservative. Uh, after I served in the Reagan administration, that's in my, uh, my bio. Two, they also know that uh, I have a tendency to uh, treat people the same, whether they're male or female, black or white, and uh, I'm just as uh, uh, likely to insult a black student as a white student. And by the way, uh, I must say the African-American students, the black students. And by the way, I once had a survey, do you want me to be called black or African-American? And it was always split down in the middle, by the way. Then I looked at Pew. Pew had a survey of this, the Pew Foundation, which is very good at, on, on attitudes. They really do great uh, surveys. And they found out that about as many people said black as said African-American. So who knows? I don't know, you know what the PC term is now, but let's say... Uh, I have a lot of black students in my uh, in my class, and uh, and I think that uh, my experience with a lot of my black students is they don't like to be pandered to, and if you hold them to a high standard, hold all students to the same standard, and they appreciate that.
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this goes it goes back to to the just just to take an example. Uh, where, like, you can't have voter ID because one in four blacks don't have an ID. And it, to me, it's just inherently racist on its face and all the way to the core. How, how could you say that? Um, and I, I asked my black friends, you know, how many black people do you know? And how many of them... <laughs> well, my whole family's black. Okay, well, how many in your family don't have an ID? I mean, you see that the, 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 the wannabe pandering nonsense in order to just try to get their agenda across. And then they'll come back
0: in four years asking for the vote again. And well, of course, Georgia, is very easy to get an ID. You don't have to have a driver's license. Getting an, uh, uh, an ID it, with it. Photo ID is extremely easy in Georgia and is in a lot of other states, Mm -hmm. so that's not a big burden. But it does put a burden on those who want to, uh, uh, let's say, commit fraud. Uh, I was talking to a. That's interesting. I was talking to a student yesterday in in my class, in seminar class, and we were talking about um, uh, briefly about this uh, mail-in ballots, and he said, "You know, my mother got three ballots in the mail, and she doesn't even live here." I said, "What?" Said she didn't live in the state, but there were three ballots addressed to her name that came to m- my apartment. Three, and I said, "Well, how many ballots did you get?" I didn't get any. I said, "You think they may know you're a Republican?" I said, "They might." And so, so, I mean, this idea that there's no... There's, of course there's widespread fraud. That's not the issue. You know, the question is, can you prove the fraud was sufficient enough or widespread enough to change the election results? That's the issue. Not that there's fraud. Of course there's fraud. Democrats always have fraud. I think I started to tell you, Woody Jenkins in Louisiana he got his st- Senate seat stolen from him. Russo, uh, I think he was in Washington State, got the governorship stolen from him. Uh, Norm Coleman has a Senate race in Minnesota, has a Senate race sold from him by Al Franken when he was initially elected and Democrats did it and they were not shy about how they did it no no
2: they're, they're never shy about it and, and it's always painfully obvious but the, the, the thing that I see especially in this cycle is it's not your colloquial oh a dead guy here voted this guy voted there I mean, I got a mail in ballot here in Georgia and I'm registered to vote in Texas I'm only here for school <laughs> how the hell did I get a mail in ballot it is, it's an amazing thing I, how how, how but there's no evidence of fraud. When, when, just four years ago, New York Times did, did an article about how voter, how mail-in ballots are so easily fraudulent. And when they go into these third-world countries to investigate their elections, they look at they look at certain things like mail-in ballot, dead people voting. Same thing we see and we look for all the time. And now it's just so much in your face. But it's it's like the schoolyard bully going, "What are you going to do about it?"
0: Exactly. What are you going to do about it? Uh, I once had a dean of law school I taught at who, um, who uh, let's say, um, tell the whopper of a lie about something, and I kind of confronted him, and I said, look, uh, Dean, uh, you know, what did you, that's not what you said. So the dean says to me, blah, D'Agostina, I never pronounced my name right, D'Agostina, uh, what did I say? And I told him, what he said, and he said, hmm, is that what I said? He said, that's what you said, Dean. He said, well, I'll tell you what. Here's what you can do about it. What are you going to do about it? And the answer is, what's your option? <laughs> there was, you know, There's always got to be a remedy. They tell you in, in law school, well, you know, there may be a harm, but what's the remedy? And there's a real interesting question. Let's say you prove you have... 300,000 hundred thousand, three hundred thousand mail-in ballots are frozen, but you don't know. Can you prove which ones were for Biden? You can assume they were all for Biden, but can you prove it? Yeah, it, it, I mean,
2: it's, it's the hairy hand case all over you. you no, know, <laughs> right. how do we, how do we value it? Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I'm. Uh, I know uh, uh, some of the uh, people on the radio uh, are real. Uh, are real into this uh, recounts and Rudy Giuliani who I know by the way I worked uh, under Rudy Giuliani went on the Justice Department and uh, great guy terrific guy very bright uh, and uh, he knows that this election was stolen from Trump but and he gets real excited about you know the various types of fraud that were committed but how are you going to overturn the election, especially since Arizona and Georgia look like they're in Biden's column? Arizona is called for Biden, and Georgia will be called for Biden after the recount. Uh, Georgia's is pretty careful about counting votes, so I don't see overturning the, the election in Georgia. Uh, what do the students think? Go back to the students. The students, are they those who believe that this election can be overturned? Those who want it to be overturned?
2: Yeah, I don't have a, a good beat on them anymore. We were in our in our group chat and I was summarily dismissed.
0: <laughs>
2: so I don't but I I have one person I talked to at law school and, and this person told me, Yeah, they are more than jovial about how this is going and they're so proud for Georgia for doing this. And you know, it it would take somebody who is here's a law school term, uh, and uh, a, a term of art. You have to be willfully blind to not see what what was going on here. You know, I went to bed on election night, going, "Wow, seven hundred thousand votes up. Okay, we're cool." <laughs> Wake up the next day, where did six hundred fifty thousand votes come from? Yeah, what would it <laughs> what is that? You know, so. I mean it's it's obvious and the same kind of thing that happened with, with uh, judicial activism in Pennsylvania happened in Arizona as well. It's the same thing happened, but this was back a couple months ago so I mean I know, I know there's a case that was filed there, but like, like you said, I mean, like I said, you know what what are you gonna do about it what are you gonna do about it you know and we know fraud is not the easiest thing to prove, especially when it comes to election fraud. I mean if that thing is already open and counted. Right, which one is it? I think one thing that definitely needs to be looked at is you know there, there's there's obviously times when there's a split ticket, but when you have four hundred fifty thousand ballots for one person on
0: their mark and that's it, it, it kind of raises an eyebrow. It well, it's oh. tough to to you know fill out fifty thousand ballots fraudulently and, <laughs> and go down ballot also. Uh, you know what about that? Uh, Poll watcher who said she was seeing people as a big van, Biden van, and they were uh, Biden workers were bidding against the van, filling out ballot ballots with Biden's name. See, in that in itself, I I think that goes back to the standard.
2: Uh, way that they cheat and it's more it's almost anecdotal at this point I think what, what's much more important to look at there's an the MIT professor you find uh, he's got his videos on YouTube he's a computer science guy he bought the exact voting machine it was a couple years ago and he said in seven minutes I hacked it and now it will switch ballots over it will delete ballots for whatever <coughs> candidate I want and it it's on YouTube as of last night who knows it's still there um and the thing to look at is in these four locations, counting stopped. It, it, it just stopped. And now and then it got picked up again a couple hours later, and I don't know when that's ever happened before. And if you sit there and you have seven minutes to do that, not to mention the, the, there was a poll watcher here in Atlanta said he noticed the, uh, the voting machine was connected to the Internet. Well, why is it connected to the Internet? Yeah, it's just... A lot of it just doesn't pass which the smell test. To put it differently,
0: uh, yeah. What people don't realize is the Democrats really have unlimited um, money. Uh, they, the billionaires. We did uh, on one of the projects in my seminar. I just it's kind of a simple project to you know research the top twelve billionaires, American billionaires, and how they made their wealth. Nothing about politics. But if you look at that list of the top twelve, there might be. There's definitely one Republican on it, and there might be a second one. They're all Democrats, and because the money being made today is not by producing things, but it's by technology. So sure, they produce the, the the software and that sort of stuff. But it's not producing things. It's not drilling for oil or finding iron ore to make makes things. So the 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 tech billionaires, and you combine them on Wall Street with the billionaires who have made their money by manipulating paper, notational billionaires, uh, the hedge fund managers, the speculators, all the speculators, uh, the people who just sit on their stocks and manipulate their stock values, and they're all Democrats. Uh, and uh, so the non-productive segments of society are overwhelmingly Democrat, Uh and I'm not saying that the tech people are non productive. Uh, a lot of what they do is non productive, but, but they're maybe one of the areas where there's some productive members of society who are Democrats. But overwhelmingly, those who live off the taxpayer, those who don't produce anything, uh, Hollywood stars, we could do without motion pictures, but they're all Democrats because they don't do it. They, they live off other people's wealth, they attract other people's wealth. So, um, and, they're, and they're overwhelmingly Democrat. So, you, so the Democrats, as someone said, Democrats are a high-low coalition. People with wealth, people who are affluent, and people who don't have any. Uh, welfare recipients. People, in other words, the wealthy folks and their servants. Um, and one of the interesting things to look at is, uh, I looked at the, the ten wealthiest members of, Dr. me, the ten wealthiest congressional districts, house districts, up until this election, I don't know if that's changed, all 10 were represented by Democrats. Now, I think that after this election, one of them will be represented by a Republican. Uh, I think a Republican narrowly won that district. But at least nine after this election, and right now in the current Congress, 10 out of 10. And people are just, what? No, no, that's not possible. The billionaires, they're all for Trump. No, no. Trump, Trump got less... Democrats outraised, and it's all public record. You don't have to believe these. These are public records. That's you know, election reform starting with the Nixon uh, administration. The Democrats wanted all to the stuff public. Uh, and the billionaires, if you take a look at them, it's over two to one in favor of Biden. Over two to one, way over two to one. Well, see, and this is how you fix
2: that. Please. See, you got these the the billionaires. Doesn't matter how much you tax them; you can tax them ninety nine percent, and Zuckerberg is still living on seven hundred acres in Hawaii. You know, he's not in the hazard class. And your low income voter who doesn't pay taxes—they're not in the hazard class as far as taxation goes. It's always on the back of the people who are in the middle class. So, and then you hear this thing. I'm old enough to remember when nobody above two hundred below two hundred fifty thousand dollars will be taxed. Now it's four hundred thousand, and it just it'll just increase. Well. That's all well and good for people like The Rock or for like Zuckerberg or Bezos. Well, I'm only going to be a tax on that much and I'm good. And but they want this progressive tax, this progressive tax and this is how you solve that. We say, "Okay, we will have this we will go with 30% tax." up to a million dollars but at a million dollars every million extra is one percent compounded all the way up to a hundred million and i bet you that these liberals who are these liberal billionaires who are so woke and want to put their money into these places who are actually conservative on tax day when they're talking to their accountant
0: they would change their tune well, I, that's probably true. Uh, one of the things I have to point out to students when say, "Oh, the Trump tax cuts—they they, they they benefited the wealthy." Well, actually, they benefited mostly the middle class and lower classes. But the answer is, they didn't benefit a lot of wealthy folks, especially if they were in high state tax. High tax states like New York and Connecticut and, and and New Jersey, what the Trump tax cut did was eliminate the tax write-off over ten thousand dollars from state taxes. So these people who were paying a hundred thousand in state taxes now had to only write off ten thousand. So they got it. They got a tax increase. So a lot of these people got a tax increase, and that's one. And of course, that's another reason for them all to be for Biden, because he will re- reverse that, and th- they will uh, be able to write off their taxes. So, in other words, the the less wealthy states have been supporting the wealthier states.
2: See, and then then you have go going back to your question about uh, you know, how many how many students are my age, or how many have ever had life experience. You know, this this is, this is has convinced them that, yes, we, we need to have the rich pay their fair share and all that other crap. But undefined. And,
0: fair share is uh, undefined. Undefined.
2: You know, that's always a good idea until the president goes in NATO and says, hey, we're not going to do anything until you fork up your money. Then we don't want people to pay their fair share, right? <laughs> but these people, I've never, I've worked before getting to law school. I've never received a paycheck from somebody who's homeless. You know, I've only worked for people with more money than me. So, if I sit there and, and, and increase their taxes, you know, the people who have the money to hire, then how do I get a job? It's very, it's very simple. It's, it's like when they raise the minimum wage uh, up in, in uh, Seattle. And you had mass layoffs. Why? Because it took the business owner more money to keep people on board. And it, this was pushed by the people in Silicon Valley who made the same machines that are operating uh, people-less, uh, worker-less KFCs in Tokyo. <laughs> you can go to, to in a KFC in Tokyo and never see anybody. The robot will make it, bring it to you, pay the robot. That's... And that, that's where this whole thing is at. And people talk about, oh, well, the, the, the scamdemic here where, where the billionaires are making so much money. Well, if I'm locked into my house, where can I buy my stuff? I can't go to mom and pop stores. I can't go to Walmart, but I can go on Amazon. So how are you complaining that you've made more money, Mr. Bezos, when you're the only one I can shop from? Oh, well, they made a lot more money, <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, oh, it's, yes.
0: it's common sense, which is just completely void. In everyday life, anymore. Anyway. Well, that's my rationale for saying we need to have a tax to to de- decrease the federal debt, and and those who are paying it would be a lot of those who have benefited tremendously by the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, although not everyone. I mean, but what does Harvard need a forty billion dollar endowment fund to to pay a army of administrators? I mean, that look. Ever since the federal government got into helping students. Right. This is in oh, 1960s. Please. the the tu- the rate in <coughs> tu- tuition increase is four times the rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. Four times the rate of inflation. Alice Rivlin, who was the, the architect of the these these federal Pell grants uh, and federal aid to education to students, in her deathbed, she was asked what she thought about her uh, what she had done, and she said. I helped create a monster. She knew. Who was benefited by the tremendous increase in tuition? A huge number of administrators. New buildings all over the place. Professors who have lighter workloads. It is considered, in law school, if you teach more than six hours a week, it's considered, you know, excessive. Six hours a week in the classroom, and and and, and when a school says, "Well, you got to teach nine hours," although one of your courses can be a double, you know, one evening, one day section of the same course, so two preparations, and that's considered oppressive. Where have we gone? When I first started, uh, my my first job as a professor was in at Delaware Law School, it was part of Widener University now, and I was assigned nine hours a semester. Uh, two cor- two preparations, an evening and day on one prep required course and then an elective for my third course, same thing the next semester. I thought I was a clover. I said, this is the easiest thing I've ever done. All I have to do is sit and do research all day, know what I'm talking about and I'm and, and go to a classroom and, and appear a bunch of, in front of a bunch of students who only have a vague idea if I'm know what I'm talking about or not uh, and I thought it was fantastic now I teach six hours a week why if, this, if, if, we have, if, if times are tough in terms of education because of the pandemic why am I not teaching nine hours a week why am I not teaching day and evening of the same section but I'm not I, look I don't want to look at gift horse in the mouth but it's let me just say this I was dean of this law school John Marshall Law School for five years and we taught nine hours a week three three sections two preparations through three sections and I don't understand why we decided to reduce it except uh, pressure from the ABA section on legal education which is a don't get me started on them. Okay uh I thank you very much, Matthew, for appearing on this show. I should say appearing, but for participating in the show. And at that point, uh, it are over. Be back. Next You're week.
1: listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.